It's uh, not a question of how rational any single person is. The question is how good are the institutions in which we collectively pursue rationality despite the biases and fallacies inside each one of us. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, are you as rational as you think you are? Probably not, but Steven Pinker is here to help. Back in the day, I used to begin this show with a rather bold promise that each week we'd bring you a new book with the power to change the way you see the world. I say bold because so few books, even the very best of them, actually achieve that lofty goal. Few writers can reach through the page, grab you by your lapels, and shake some sense into you. But one author who has consistently had that effect on me is Steven Pinker. It started back in 2002 when he published The Blank Slate. At the time, he was a psychology professor at MIT, and a lot of his research had focused on the theory that our linguistic abilities aren't learned, they're innate. In the blank slate, he looked beyond language. He combined, as the New York Times put it, an arsenal of scientific research, acute analysis, and a pugnacious attitude to argue that human nature, your personality, your intelligence, your moral compass, is powerfully influenced by your genes. And this need not be threatening to our moral values. Acknowledging that there is such a thing as human nature can help us be more effective at improving the world. The book made waves. It won plaudits, as well as criticism from liberals and conservatives alike. This would become a pattern. By 2007, he'd left MIT for Harvard, but he'd held on to his fascination with using that arsenal of scientific research to reveal surprising truths about human nature. So when an online magazine asked him, what are you optimistic about? Steve wrote, the decline of violence. He spent the next four years working on what would become his next book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. He gathered data everywhere he could find it, from classical literature to modern criminology, to show that as agriculture spread, democracy took root and reason flourished, the world became a considerably safer place. His next book, Enlightenment Now, pushed that optimistic view even further. It's not just violence that has plummeted, he says. Extreme poverty is also in retreat. Meanwhile, literacy, longevity, and prosperity are all on the rise. Bill Gates called it the most inspiring book he'd ever read. It also provoked fierce backlash. Academics accused Steve of cherry-picking data. Activists said his embrace of incremental progress overlooked the importance of radical action. Critics pointed out that while the rising tide of progress Steve described may have lifted some boats, it left plenty of others stuck in the muck. Steve's rejoinder is that data doesn't lie. If we agree that violence and poverty are bad and literacy and health are good, then the world is getting incrementally better, albeit fitfully with periodic loss of ground. And the engine of that progress, he argues, is rationality, our collective ability to think critically, martial logic, and relentlessly pursue objective truth. This, in Steve's view, is the secret to our success. In his new book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters, he writes, when humans set themselves the goal of improving the welfare of their fellows, and they apply their ingenuity in institutions that pool it with others, they occasionally succeed. When they retain the successes and take note of the failures, the benefits can accumulate. 
Rationality dares to argue that those benefits might accumulate even faster if we familiarize ourselves with the tools of logic, get better at sniffing out fallacies, embrace institutions that safeguard empirical truths, and entertain the idea that halting, wobbly, imperfect progress is better than no progress at all. If you believe that in order to avoid calamity, we are all going to need to make increasingly logical, carefully considered decisions, then we may want to hand out this book on street corners. So this time I say without reservation, this is a book that might just change the way you see the world. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Steven Pinker, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you. Well, let me say on the front end, Steve, that it is a treat for me to have you here today. Your book, The Blank Slate, made a significant impact on me in my earlier years, and I've been cheerleading from the sidelines your last two books, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, both of which do something reckless, which is to take an optimistic view of historical trends and the trajectory of our species more broadly. But I'm curious to know, would you describe yourself as an optimist? Have you, have you always leaned towards an optimistic view of the world? Well, I, I would say no. And I resist the characterization of Better Angels and Enlightenment Now as optimistic books. I mean, in a sense, they are. But their point isn't that we should uh, see the glasses half full or, or, or wear rose-colored glasses. It's that we should be aware of data that most people are ignorant of. So the, has violence increased or decreased? Well, don't consult your intuitions. Don't consult your memory of what you read in the paper this morning. Let's uh, look at people who've counted bodies uh, over the years, whether it's from wars or homicides or whatever uh, other, other category of violence you're interested in, and just see whether the lines went up or down. Obviously, those books you know, performed extremely well and 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 were well received by you know huge audiences. But I, I was I was really surprised by the how much negative response they got from the left. And I, I wonder whether reading your new book, Rationality, to what extent perhaps those critics will be able to benefit from this new book in more rationally um, evaluating the prior books. Was that was that on your mind at all? Um uh, you know, I, I wrote I wrote the book for its own reasons. Uh, it, it is, uh, I think, there is a consistent, uh, I guess, f philosophy of the human condition. You might put it across those the four books that we've talked about, which is there is such a thing as human nature. It includes some 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 rather nasty uh, qualities like like dominance and revenge. Uh, it has some irrational qualities and uh, such as the classic. Uh, illusions and biases and fallacies that cognitive psychologists and behavioral economists have um, documented over the decades. Uh, on the other hand, one part of human nature is an open-ended, combinatorial, creative uh, capacity to come up with new ideas and to share them with language. And uh, over the centuries, we have put uh, every now and again put our brains to the problem of reducing human scourges like disease, like hunger, like oppression, like violence. 
we've come up uh, now and again with uh, innovations, inventions, institutions, norms, laws, customs that, uh, that, 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 that reduce the nastier parts of the human condition. And if we remember the ones that work and uh, try not to repeat our mistakes, then you know, gradually and unevenly we can make, pro make progress. So it's a, a mess. It, it is progressive in the sense that it uh, allows for the possibility of progress and, and um, advocates it, calls for it, calls for, for examining the status quo and trying to do better. Uh, it cautions against any kind of uh, utopian thinking because we are uh, imperfect beings. None of us is infallible or omniscient. That's one of the reasons that that uh, among the principles of rationality are free speech, open inquiry, the ability to voice ideas and to criticize ideas. Uh, but you can be, believe in human nature and be a, a progressive too, uh, which I am. Now, I, I joke that uh, in the uh, in Enlightenment now that progressives hate progress. Uh, that is, <laughs> and right. you, you mentioned that the just pointing to data, saying we live longer, fewer people are are poor, there are, there are fewer famines, there's less war, um, outrages people, especially yeah. Yeah. Uh, well on the left and the right for different reasons. And some of the reaction to the book is, uh, how, how dare you say that progressives hate progress, and how dare you say that there's been progress. <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that, it, that 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 response comes in part from a a tactical analysis, whether it's conscious or unconscious, among many liberals, that uh, proclaiming that the apocalypse is coming is more effective in motivating uh, people to engage in positive change than pointing out where we've made progress, and that if we continue to do the things that are that are generating progress, that we will be much better off. Of course, there's a separate analysis, which is what what is the reality? Uh, indeed, and, and of course, foremost, we've got to know what the reality is. Uh, but yes, if you tell people we're doomed, then I don't think that's the the best prompt for uh, uh, effective constructive action, because the uh, the two rational responses to the announcement that we're doomed are well, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's why try to make the world a better place if if people will just screw it up no matter what you do and and we're doomed anyway. So let's just enjoy ourselves. Or uh, everything is rotten. Let's just um, burn everything down to, uh, to 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 enjoy the flames, and you know, take take a take a gamble that anything that rises out of the ashes is bound to be better than what we have now. Now, I think both of those are pernicious. The first one would be apathy and, and cynicism. The the second one would be a, a kind of destructive radicalism, which ignores the fact that things can be much worse than they are now. And, yeah. and you know, history tells us that. You can have you know, cholera, you can have rampaging uh, gangs and militias in, 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 in the streets committing uh, you know, rape and arson and looting. It's bottomless how, how low a society can, can go. We are very far from that bottom. We are not where we ought to be along many dimensions, but it's looking at things that that uh, have worked. They've not haven't brought us perfection, and nothing will. And it's probably dangerous to try. But um, it suggests that a lot of the things that kind of good old fashioned liberals uh, were in favor of, like science, like like certain government policies, if they're well thought out, if they're evaluated to see if they work, can actually make things better. If you do take a more 
evidence-driven uh, approach. You say, well, hey, you know, Medicaid and Medicare really have reduced the rates of uh, untreated illness among the elderly mm -hmm. and the poor. Mm -hmm. Social security has uh, decimated poverty among uh, the elderly. The earned income tax credit has protected people against uh, the, the, the ravages of, uh, of, of inequality and made up mm -hmm. for some wage stagnation. You can say, well, let's, you know, let's redouble our efforts. Let's figure out what the uh, policies uh, are that we can, should keep, maybe even better ones that we can have in the future. Because yeah, they do work. Not not perfectly, but much better than nothing. Getting to the subject at hand of your latest book, Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, and why it matters. For starters, a really elementary question, how do you define rationality? I define it as the, the uh, use of knowledge to attain a goal, where knowledge means justified true belief. In your own life, are there areas where you behave irrationally? Oh, there uh, surely are, and I'm probably the last person to ask because uh, we tend to have a blind spot toward our own fallacies, but I, I, I do my best. But, uh, but sure, I, I take some risks that I probably can't justify. Uh, bicycling, and uh, I, I probably you know, jaywalk occasionally, uh, where the, the benefit of getting across the street a few seconds earlier couldn't possibly justify the risk of the probability of getting killed multiplied by the value I place on my own life. I, I probably don't review my investments often enough to see if my you know, re retirement fund is wisely uh, allocated. You know, now, now, granted, there is a, I do talk about in, in the book, the concept of bounded rationality. Namely, mm -hmm. if I took out, uh, you know, a day a week to study my investment portfolio, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably be a little more comfortable when I retire, but I'd be throwing away a, a seventh of my life before I retire. <laughs> so uh, there, that is the concept of bounded rationality from, from uh, the economist and cognitive scientist Herbert Simon is that computation, reasoning, rationality have costs. You got to gather the information. You've got to uh, allocate the attention, and uh, so you can't be—you can never be perfectly rational. I've, when it comes to the bicycling, Steve, I, I've made the case to my wife, uh, and I've not succeeded in convincing her of this. If I am in my life to engage in any kind of higher-risk activities, like riding a motorcycle or skiing, that it'd be more rational to do that towards the end of my life, because the opportunity cost of possibly dying is smaller because I'll have fewer, <laughs> fewer, fewer years remaining to live. Well, you know, you have identified a paradox in um, the psychology of risk-taking, which is that yeah. your, your logic is impeccable and it predicts that it's the people in their 70s who should be, you know, reckless risk-takers, who should be surfing on, uh, on railroad cars and uh, dangling under underpasses to spray graffiti on the arch. Whereas uh, teenagers who have their entire lives uh, ahead of them should be ultra-cautious. Now, it doesn't work that way. It's just an interesting puzzle in, uh, in right. human evolutionary psychology. You know, it's easy to be discouraged right now about the human capacity for rationality, looking around. Um, but you make the case that we have the capacity for, for pretty extraordinary rational thinking. You begin the book with a description of the San of the Kalahari Desert. And their lifestyle provides some insights into how our hunter-gatherer ancestors lived. And I, I love this passage. You write that the San reasoned their way from fragmentary data to remote conclusions with an intuitive grasp of logic, critical thinking, statistical reasoning, correlation and causation, and game theory. Could you share some examples of how the San do this? Yeah, and I wanted to counter the, the tendency to blame human irrationality on our hunter-gatherer ancestors. That is, well, they're always you know, poised to flinch at the, the rustle of a predator in the, in the uh, grass. 
And so that that explains why we jump the gun and and reason from our our mm, uh, gut yeah. and the seat of our pants. But no, they're they're uh, hunter gatherers are highly cerebral. They they have to be because they're slower than than uh, uh, other animals and less fierce. And uh, but the the sun will figure out from some tracks what the species was, how tired it was. It's uh, often it's it's uh, age from how. Uh, uh, eroded the hoof must have been that left a, uh, a track. This makes a big difference because the way they hunt is they uh, pursue an animal until it keels over from exhaustion. We, we humans do have one advantage over furry mammals, and that is we're, we're naked and we sweat. So we can jog and run and do kind of marathons. We're not faster than an antelope, but we actually last longer. The antelope will keel over from heat stroke. And however, the antelope will you know, dart over the horizon and th then be gone, and all that it leaves behind is tracks. And so to relentlessly pursue the antelope until it collapses, you've really got to know what, uh, well, first of all, whether there's any hope, whether it's a, such a swift species that you, and in such good shape that you may as well give up, or whether it's starting to flag, whether the uh, spaces between the hoof prints show that it's starting to tire out, if it's kicking up uh, sand, uh, a, a lot of inferences like that. And they debate them, and a young upstart can contradict his elder. And uh, kinds of reasoning that we, you know, we, we kind of take for granted, but mm. it goes back as best we can tell for, to as long as we've been human and uh, th their capacities that are sitting inside all of us. Well, and meanwhile, the San might, might look at us today and say, 55% of Americans believe in psychic healing, 41% in ESP, 37% believe in haunted houses, 32% believe in ghosts. And you point out that, <laughs> this is all from your book, you point out that some people believe in houses haunted by ghosts without believing in ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> an example great. of the famous uh, conjunction fallacy that people do can believe that uh, A and B is more probable than A alone, even though that's a mathematically impossible. Right, exactly. Um, what's happening? What, what sometimes happens is that um, because a lot of mainstream media are uh, squirrely when it comes to paranormal phenomena, so you can mm -hmm. watch the History Channel and they'll give credulous coverage yeah. of ancient uh, astronauts. Or recently, the New Yorker magazine had a, a credulous article about uh, UFOs. Uh, the New York Times has sometimes given sympathetic portraits to astrologers and uh, self-described psychics. So the hard-headed view that uh, you know, our best science rules some things out, mm. like ESP, is actually not something that people are, are really exposed to that much. Yep. And given that we all have certain intuitions, like minds can exist separately from bodies, that's kind of how we, we uh, interact with people. We don't interact with them you know, most of the time, most of us as hunks of flesh, but rather we have conversations with uh, mind to mind. That's what we're, you and I are doing right now then it's kind of a short step to think that minds can part company from bodies in an afterlife, in reincarnation, in uh, ghosts and spirits. And if you don't have the, the most consistent, hard-headed scientist saying, look, we've checked, we know the laws of physics pretty well, this can't happen, then uh, it's easy to think, well, that there, there are various exceptions to that rule, that paranormal phenomena are plausible. You know, this is one of the things that I love about, about the book, which is that it's not disdainful of our failures to be rational. And I think this is important because disdain, this act of kind of looking down at other people, is one of the sins that I think liberal intellectuals tend to be guilty of, you know? And, and I think the spirit of generosity and patience in understanding 
how it is that we arrive at these kind of irrational conclusions is inspiring and helpful. I because I, I I find myself getting frustrated at you know say how common it is among friends of mine for folks to, to talk casually about astrology. You know the sort of idea that somehow every 30 days, the personalities of babies just just immediately change a lot of time. Right. And, like, yes. and yeah. it just strikes me as so categorically irrational. And there's a part of me that feels like, God, folks, on the one hand, it's cute and it's fun and, and it's a way of connecting. On the other hand, it's a slippery slope and we really need to be, we, we really need to help each other think critically, right? And so I, I, I find myself getting frustrated, but I think that it's very helpful to walk through why it is that we've landed on this tendency to, to think in these irrational ways. I, I thought it could be fun to share with our listeners some of the great rational problems that you present in the book. Here's, here's one of them. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Please indicate the probability of each of these statements Linda's a teacher in elementary school. Linda is active in the feminist movement. Linda's a psychiatric social worker. Linda is a bank teller. Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. So the surprise in the results is that, is that more respondents guessed that Linda was a feminist bank teller than guessed that she was a bank teller. Yes, this is the famous Linda problem, uh, an illustration of the conjunction fallacy that goes back to a um, work by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. And the irrationality, of course, is one that we alluded to earlier in the conversation, namely the probability of A and B can um, never be higher than the probability of A alone. It's like saying that you're likelier to draw a, uh, a red queen from a deck than a red card. Uh, they just can't be true. <laughs> but uh, what happens is that people, uh, Tversky and Kahneman's explanation is that people pretty much reason by stereotype. And since that description fits the joint category feminist bank teller better than the category bank teller. And since Linda is a social justice warrior, then the category feminist bank teller you know, kind of fits her to a T. Now, by the way, this is, you know, Linda is kind of a, a baby boomer name. There aren't any, I don't have any students named Linda. Uh, it's been a long time since there've been anti-nuclear demonstrations. And there's been a kind of a cloud of suspicion over a lot of classic psychology findings as to whether they replicate. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I can affirm this is highly replicable. And if it's, instead of Linda, it's Amanda. And instead of it's anti-nuclear, it's Black Lives Matter. The effect works just fine. In fact, it's very hard to make it go away. Even if you do obvious things, like instead of saying, what's the probability that Linda is a feminist bank teller? You say, imagine a thousand women just like Linda. How many of them are bank tellers? How many of them are feminist bank tellers? Well, now the, the uh, since now it's kind of a question of <laughs> kind of a real arithmetic, far fewer people get it wrong. But a lot of people still do. So it's, it's, it's a robust effect. And you see it actually in a lot of human conversation and discourse and deliberation. For example, it is a, a built-in fallacy in a lot of pundits and prognosticators. If I were to say, what's the, what are the chances that, uh, there'll be, uh, that World War III will break out in the next 10 years? And I say, well, what is the chances that China will invade Taiwan, uh, prompting an American response and escalating into World War III? A lot of people give a higher probability to the latter, just because it's so much more imaginable than the greater category of World War III breaking out for any reason, including that one, which has got to be higher. But since we don't have a scenario in our imagination that we can play out, then we, uh, that which we can't imagine, we assume to be improbable. Right. People are selecting the more vivid story 
right? We are storytelling animals and we like hearing stories and, and greater detail suggests to us that it's more believable. Um, and, and navigating statistical predictions is, is such a critical part of our lives. You know, will it rain tomorrow? Will Biden beat Trump? Yet most of us don't really understand how probability actually works. And, and, and I think neglecting base rates seems to be one of the most consistent sins that we uh, uh, that we're guilty of. This is another uh, conclusion that was uh, identified by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, that uh, it's behind the conjunction fallacy in the in the Linda problem. Namely, we go with the description rather than the uh, the, the base rate, um, and it does it affects medical diagnosis. If you've got a positive test result for a not not so common disease, and, and that it's not a perfect test, so there's a certain percentage of false positives. Well, when you think about it, if it's unlikely you have the disease in the first place and the test does give a few false positives, that if you've got a positive result, it doesn't mean you have the disease. It might be 50-50. It may be that, uh, or, yeah. or, or less. And in fact, yeah. a lot of doctors get, get it wrong. If, if uh, the prevalence of a disease in a population is, say, one in a thousand, if a, uh, the false alarm rate for a test is, uh, say, you know, 10%, then if the true positive rate is 90%, then if you have a, a, a positive result, Chances are you don't have the disease, and actually a lot of a, a lot of uh, physicians, let alone their patients, make make that error. In the case of uh, forecasting, the error is to overweight highly imaginable scenarios, even though every extra detail that you add to a scenario should make it less probable, because the same outcome could come about for all kinds of other reasons. But the uh, the, the the better the, uh, the the dramaturgical setup. The more vivid the narrative, yep, yep. Uh, the, the more compelling the story, the more probable we think it is. You know, one very practical area where we're not very rational is in assessing risk. Um, and it seems like part of this is that we don't make the effort to collect good data. Uh, you know, like, for instance, you point out, I, I found this statistic kind of remarkable. I mean, we, so many of us are more afraid of flying than driving. Flying, there are only 250 deaths per year, if I remember correctly. And yet there are more than a million deaths per year from driving globally. And I think, I think this ends up relating to media coverage and the availability heuristic and the, the kind of uh, fears that were presented with by the media. Uh, absolutely. And um, as much as I respect the, uh, the, the mainstream media for editing and fact-checking and developing a reputation for accuracy, there's a, a built-in way in which the media... Uh, misinform people, and that is they uh, serve up events, uh, and especially big, newsworthy, photogenic uh, events that because life often happens in the things that, uh, that, that don't take place, the, the cities that aren't uh, attacked by terrorists, the neighborhoods that, uh, that, are, that are not deteriorating, uh, and those don't get covered, whereas things that go viral, that are... Uh, captured on cell phone cameras that uh, have big, big orange explosions. Those get printed above the fold. A reminder for, for listeners that that's an allusion to these things called newspapers, hard copies of news sites. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and as a result, the news systematically misinforms people, uh, not because of any you know, malfeasance or, or you know, being the enemy of the people, but that's just what, that's just kind of built into the nature of news. And, you know, I, I do think that the, news section of uh, of news sources should 
uh, take a, 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 a leaf out of the page of the sports section and the business section, and which publish statistics every day, and people read them. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't just, in the, the business section, you find out the price of commodities and currencies and, yep. and stocks and bonds, whether they go up, down, or, or don't change. Whereas uh, on the, the front page, you only see carbon emissions or the crime rate or, or war deaths uh, when, when something happens. Whereas there should be more kind of either dashboards where you can track an indicator, or at least a story about an event could put it into statistical context. And say there, yes, there has been this uh, school shooting, but uh, it accounts for you know a fraction of one percent of all murder victims. Absolutely. No, it's I, I love that suggestion, and and people do seem to like data. When you look at you, you know we, we consume a lot of data about about the weather, about as you say the stock market, about sports teams, and it it, it does seem like better presentation of data could make an enormous difference. And you know when you talk about the problem with exaggerated uh, senses of danger based on media representations. This can have minor effects like we don't want to swim in the ocean because we're afraid of getting bitten by a shark, which is highly unlikely. But also, as you point out, much more concerning and, and damaging long-term implications, such as the fear of nuclear power, right? I think you point out that the media frenzy over Three Mile Island in Chernobyl kind of had a profound impact on stalling the spread of nuclear power around the world, which in the long run may have have seriously contributed to our environmental problems. Yeah, I uh, uh, someone that I know said he blames uh, climate change on the Doobie Brothers and Bruce Springsteen for their 1979 uh, benefit concert, No Nukes, uh, which following Three Mile Island tried to you know, terrify people about the danger of a meltdown, whereas more people are killed in a, uh, a week from pollution from the burning of coal that have died in all of the nuclear accidents since the uh, dawn of nuclear power. But because people dying of emphysema and, uh, and, and asthma and pulmonary diseases just never make the papers, but the, the people who died in Chernobyl do, we can have a warped sense of um, uh, what's likely to kill us with, with uh, terrible effects on our policies. You know, when we think about risks in different areas of our lives. One observation I would make is that it seems to me that people are not very good at distinguishing between different types of risks in different parts of our lives. So we have like, you know, risks to our health, you know, from eating bad food or, or riding bicycles as you <laughs> through cities, uh, risks to our finances, you know, whether it's gambling or investing in the stock market. And then there are these reputational risks, right? Like public speaking or starting a new business. Personally, as a serial entrepreneur, I've built currently building company number four. It seems to me that people might actually have an exaggerated idea of the risk of starting a new business. You know, I, I recently pulled some data, and according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, about 20% of U.S. small businesses fail within the first year. By the end of year five, roughly 50% fail. After 10 years, a third have survived. So that's, you know, not great odds. But on the other hand, if you start a series of businesses over the course of decades, one will probably succeed, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And we also know that people are happier when they work for themselves because they, ha they have more autonomy, they build things they believe in. Because the, the downside of a business failing is not like the downside of, of uh, risks riding a bicycle uh, or skiing through trees. Our, our fears are, are consistent in all realms of life, but but I think that it, it may not be obvious to people that that some risks are more serious than others. 
Well, indeed. And um, I mean, th this falls into the uh, area of the of um, expected utility or rational choice, and I have a chapter on that. If we're so risk averse that no one ever starts a business, then we'd be much worse off. Even though, uh, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of businesses fail. But the thing is that the ones that succeed multiply, or the probability of success multiplied by the amount of good uh, it does us. That uh, we want to encourage that kind of risk taking because the overall payoffs are are hugely positive. And that's why we have on the one hand, and this is this took, of course, centuries to develop, but we have things like the uh, bankruptcy laws mm -hmm. that uh, allow you, means you don't become a pauper if you start a business and, and it fails. Uh, we've eliminated debtor's prisons so that uh, people can take chances but don't have to worry about giving up their, their freedom. And of course, part of the whole you know, business ethos is it's okay to fail. I'm proud of my failures as well as my successes. Uh, you know, dare to try it out. You also have to change the social stigma. And if it were to deter too many people from taking chances, then we'd all be worse off. If you again, you multiply out the chance of success by the net social benefit. Now, someone could say, you know, critics of entrepreneurial culture or capitalism could say, well, that that whole the, the whole effect on society has been. Uh, negative, we'd be better off if we didn't have anyone starting businesses, but the government controlled the whole economy. But, you know, we do have some data on how well, you know, that works out, such as in the Soviet Union and Maoist China, uh, North Korea. Uh, and, and we also have data on the fact that since the, the birth of modern uh, capitalism, maybe 250 years ago, um, poverty has plunged and um, prosperity has uh, soared, as have a, a lot of other good things, such as longevity and education and women's rights and minority rights and, and, uh, and so on. So yes, you want a culture and you want a legal system that uh, incentivizes reasonable risk-taking despite the inevitability of uh, failure. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and thinking of other examples of just very practical ways in which rational thinking can help people in their lives. One that really struck me in the early pages of your book was the difficulty that people have understanding exponential growth, the exponential nature of compounding returns. And you give this great kind of thought experiment of asking people, um, what happens when someone invests $400 per month for 40 years with a 10% annual return? And when people are asked to guess how much money is produced at the end of this, the guesses are much lower than the actual number, which I'm sure you remember, I believe is $2.5 million, right? $400 a month invested for, over the course of 40 years with a 10% annual return. The power of compounding returns is something that I think a lot of people have trouble fully grokking. I mean, the, the, the simplest example comes from a three-item test in uh, cognitive reflectiveness developed by Shane Frederick. And it is, uh, uh, imagine that the lily pads on a pond double every day. At the end of 30 days, the pond is completely covered. On what day is it half covered? The answer is the, the 29th day. That uh, it's because if it doubles every day, then working backwards from when it's uh, completely covered, then it's half covered the day before. People tend to guess something more like halfway through the month or a little bit more than halfway. And uh, the blast off uh, of exponential growth tends not to occur to us. And uh, so uh, people underinvest in retirement. The earlier you begin, the uh, the better. People tend to take on too much credit card uh, debt where it, because it can compound that you, that is you pay interest on the interest you haven't paid. Uh, you can lose any amount of money. Uh, people underestimated the danger of COVID in the early 
days yeah. of the pandemic, including some experts uh, who said, oh, well, it's, it's, it's no worse than strep throat. But if uh, every infected person could not only infect others, but turn them into infectors, that's the in ingredient for exponential growth. And we, we really you can't keep track of it in our minds. It's interesting why not, because anything that uh, reproduces uh, leads to exponential growth, and we, you know, we're in, a, in an ecosystem of living things. Probably the reason is that exponential growth in natural environments can't go on for very long. Anything that grows exponentially will, will or starts to grow exponentially will, will foul its environment or consume all of its resources and stop growing exponentially. So we don't actually see a whole lot of exponential growth in, in a natural environment, except in artificial institutions like you know, banking and finance, where there's no limit to the amount of money you can owe or earn. So we all have irrational tendencies that can affect us in trivial personal ways. But what happens when our irrationality is more potent than that? What happens when a failure to think clearly seeps out into society? Steve shares his answer after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Chapter 10, which you introduced, I think your first sentence is, this is the chapter you've been waiting for. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes. is, it will be a crowd pleaser. It's just fascinating. And you clearly spent a lot of time thinking about why it is that we have these kind of irrational tendencies. And you come up with a theory that I think is original to you. It sounded like a new idea that people fundamentally live in two realms, right? They, they live in a, a literal realm in, in which we, we all live every day. We pick up our kids from school, we navigate the world, and we're pretty rational navigating this literal realm. And then we also inhabit a mythological realm, you know, um, that there's a place where we can have somewhat fantastical beliefs in a kind of shared realm with other people that's beyond our comprehension. And this is something that as humans, we've been doing for a very long time, right? Because, you know, we've had, you know, whether that was Greeks believing in all the many gods or, or what have you. And that this mythological realm, I think if, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, is more about social cohesion and shared identity than it is a sober attempt to apprehend reality. Is, is, am, I, am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah ab absolutely. You know, I'll give some credit to some predecessors, uh, the social psychologist Robert Abelson, yeah. the uh, cognitive anthropologist Dan Sperber, who had ver versions of this idea. But yeah, it helps resolve the paradox that a rational species can be uh, capable of entertaining so much uh, malarkey uh, when it comes to, and, and the fact that the people who believe in, in stark raving mad conspiracy theories like QAnon, you know, a lot of them you know, do hold a job. They they fill out their taxes. They uh, you know they, they they repair their cars. So it's not that they are um, absolutely de deluded, uh, hallucinating uh, in their everyday lives. But it's okay to be deluded and to hallucinate in certain realms where you know traditionally we couldn't find out. Uh, even for most of us today, it doesn't really matter 
what we believe, unless we're movers and shakers and influencers, no one really cares about your opinions of, of uh, the origins of COVID or what is the cause of jet contrails in the sky? Are they, uh, is it condensing water vapor or these mind-altering drugs secretly dispensed by a government program? I mean, who cares what you believe? So you may as well believe in... Um, a good story, something that uh, confirms your worst suspicions about your enemies, that might rally your uh, the people in your own sect or your own tribe uh, together. Now, we, uh, some of us have the belief that, uh, or the meta belief, that all of our beliefs should be grounded in evidence and and reason. If you can't find uh, the, out the truth, you should say we don't know the truth, but that you shouldn't just weave, weave uh, entertaining or empowering stories. But that is a... Um, it is a, a, a recent and weird and historically unusual conviction that all of our beliefs should be held in terms of whether they are true or false. A lot of people, probably most people, at least in some realms, don't care. And you, you even see that in things like historical fiction, like uh, the events depicted in, in the, the Crown about the, uh, the, the British royal family. Uh, some historians say, hey, wait a second, you, they couldn't possibly know whether those dialogues took place. And, and some of them we know didn't take place. And the writers of the show say, well, yeah, true, false, it's a, you know, it's a good story. It could have happened. You know, why, why, why are you getting so, uh, so, so anal, so persnickety? Um, so you can see that uh, response even in highly educated, literate people. You see it in the the um, reaction to the, the so-called new atheists like Richard Dawkins and uh, Dan Dennett and Sam Harris. They were viciously attacked, not by people who say, look, here's all the evidence that God does exist, but rather uh, this isn't the kind of question that you should be debating whether it's true or false in the first place. It gives yep. people spiritual sucker. It uh, brings people together. It, it leads to social action. It gives. Uh, it, it sounds the rough edges off of life. Uh, why, why are you being so literal minded and asking whether it, whether God yeah, exists or yeah, not? Uh, fascinating. Well, and and as you point out, religion was once arguably in the literal realm. That if if you believe as a Christian that anyone who doesn't convert to Christianity will burn in hell for eternity, which is a very long time, uh, <laughs> you would be doing people, if you really believe that, right, on a literal level, you would be doing people a service to hold them at sword point and, and, and force them to convert to Christianity, which people did. Yeah, you'd be doing doing the biggest favor of their uh, of, of their lives. Yeah. It's the least you, you gotta, could do. You got to give them, you got to give them credit for for acting on their uh, having the courage of their convictions. Yeah, but you point out that religion has obviously many people are, are are passionate believers, but it's moved away from this literal interpretation. You don't see people, you know, uh, you know, converting people at, at at sword point at the same levels. But and, and I've. You know, I'm reminded of the argument, I'm trying to think of where I first encountered this, maybe it was um, Zero to Sum by Robert Wright, that groups of people who, who, who collaborate more effectively have outcompeted groups of people who are less effective at collaborating for all of human history, that this is sort of part of the arc of human history, and that an advantage that religious belief gave groups of people was uh, belief in a common cause that enabled them to organize and, and potentially form armies or, or, you know, become very successful as a culture because they had this collective belief in a higher power. And to some degree, this, I don't know if I'm stretching this too far here, but this sense that we, we like having shared mythological beliefs in higher powers, um, and we may be attracted to that. In a weird way, we have right now, we have what, 25% of Americans believe in QAnon. Right, which is this just totally preposterous notion that, you know, the government, media, and finance are controlled by a group of Satan worshiping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. <laughs> you forgot the cannibalism. 
Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just utterly preposterous. It's, it's but, sparking mad, and uh, but you know, again, it becomes a little less more comprehensible when you you say, well, what do you mean by believe? Right. That is, are are all these people you know kind of calling the police? Uh, now, some of them, of course, are. Some of them stormed the Capitol because they literally believed that they were combating this uh, cabal. Most of them, it's like, yeah, well, maybe it's true. It's kind of interesting to think that it's true. It could very well be true. I wouldn't put it past them to do those things. Uh, you know, why, why are you being such a, uh, uh, you know, so, so, so little-minded in, in forcing me to, to show whether it's true or not? It's just not the way that people think about beliefs in that uh, realm. Well, it, it's for me anyway, this distinction that you make between sort of truth realm and mythology realm was very helpful in trying to understand, you know, how it is that people are, are, arrive at these views. And as, as, as you pointed out, like if you really have millions and millions and millions of, of Americans who, who, who believed that there's a, a, you know, a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., where there's a child sex trafficking operation in the basement, that it, it, there ended up being one like one star review making reference to lewd glances at, at children and then one guy who came in with a gun to try to investigate the basement but if this is out of countless millions of people who actually literally believe this was happening why was it so few people who actually took it action and your argument would be well this was more of a of a loosely held mythological realm conviction Exactly. I mean, if you if you really thought children were being raped in the basement, then you should call the police. And no one called the police. I mean, there was that one guy who's who the the the, the comet ping pong avenger. I think of him who who burst in with his guns blazing. Fortunately, he didn't hurt anyone, and he was repentant afterwards. But uh, but he took it he took it uh, literally, and, and most people don't. It's like, well, I wouldn't put it past them to do something like that, whether they do or not. Uh, you know, who knows? But the, the 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 thing is that they could, and if you believe that that they do, then you'll be on the right side of this divide. So maybe my friends who are astrology believers have enjoy this as a loosely held common mythology and aren't actually hiring their employees based on their birthdays. You sure hope not, and and I, I suspect that that's that I suspect that's exactly true. Yeah, probably right. Yeah. Well, so after this this great exercise in understanding all the different reasons why we humans have these irrational tendencies, you end the book with a kind of call to action, and you say, "To understand is not to forgive. We can understand why people are irrational without conceding that it's okay." Right, because these these beliefs can have real consequences. False beliefs about about vaccines result in people dying. Conspiracy theories incite terrorism, wars, genocide. But then you say the arc of knowledge is a long one, and it bends towards rationality, uh, which which um, was I was surprised to read that line after all the everything that had preceded it. <laughs> Well, yeah, there are certain, uh, you know, for all of the thousands of lies that Donald Trump told, none of them involved uh, paranormal phenomena. None of them involved, you know, astrology or omens. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, you, if there's kind of a perverse kind of progress there. But uh, and other customs like uh, human sacrifice, um, astrology in actual political decision making, witchcraft and sorcery accusations. There are things that that uh, that do tend to fall by the wayside, uh, as well as barbaric practices, of course, like like uh, like slavery, like uh, lynching, like 
dueling among men of honor, like uh, laughing at the insane as a way of, uh, of a form of entertainment, public hangings, uh, capital punishment for shoplifting. Uh, you know, and these, of course, the, the, the topics of my uh, earlier two books, Better Angels mm -hmm. of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. And, and of course, science itself uh, has been spectacularly advancing. And rationality has been applied to uh, domains of human activity that formerly were just guided by gut feeling and intuition, such as effective altruism in philanthropy. Mm. That yeah. is, how yeah. about allocating your money where it'll do the most good? Moneyball in sports. Does uh, you know? Does the sacrifice bunt really really work? Well, let's go. Let's let's go to the data. Uh, Evidence-driven policing, which was responsible for uh, at least part of the great American crime decline in the '90s. Uh, Evidence-based medicine. Uh, and uh, and uh, other domains in which we actually are getting more rational. Mm -hmm. I think there's a kind of, there may be an increase in rationality inequality at the top end. Right. We're right. more rational than ever, even though uh, the, the, the top may be racing yeah. away from the bottom. Which begs the question, what's the point of refining your own rationality if society at large is increasingly illogical? The answer, Steve says, is that we have to radically update our norms and values. Coming up after the break, he shares his vision for how we might go about doing that. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. So there are really two challenges here. There's the challenge for each of us to become more rational as individuals. And purchasing your book, Rationality, is clearly a great, a great first step for anybody interested in that project. Uh, but then the, the bigger challenge for us collectively is how, how do we become more rational as a society? And, and you say we need to valorize the norm of rationality itself, right? That we need to change our norms to, to celebrate and reward rational thinking. Is that right? I think that's that's one one ingredient. I, I think that the three main ingredients, one of them is education, that the mm. tools of rationality, such as probability and critical thinking, should be taught uh, early and, and, and reinforced throughout the curriculum. Uh, a second is the institutions that promote rationality, such as peer review, uh, fact-checking, freedom of speech, have to be reinforced. And then the, th the third, and this is the hardest to implement because you can't legislate norms from the top down, but it, it should be just uh, you know, common etiquette that, uh, that you don't base an argument on an anecdote or that you mm -hmm. don't, uh, you take a peek at the arguments from, from the uh, other side. You don't knock down a straw man when you're criticizing someone else, but you, as they, they say, steel man it. That is, you, you come up with the strongest possible version of the mm -hmm. argument and you mm -hmm. try to refute that. These are the norms of the so-called rationality community, but it, it shouldn't be the, uh, you know, kind of the credo of a, a club of oddballs. It should be <laughs> the, uh, yeah. the, the watchword of, uh, of all, all literate and intelligent people. Yeah. And you say that we should add a fourth R to reading, writing, and arithmetic, rationality. And I heard you say that you'd trade some high school math, such as trigonometry, for, uh, for, for classes in, in probability and Bayesian 
reasoning. I think my 16-year-old son would be in favor of that. So they they still teach trigonometry in high school? I yeah they do. My son my son has is taking it. Yeah, now. I mean I, I you know I learn I love trigonometry. I've actually I even used trigonometry in my everyday life. Yeah. Uh, every now and again, not not that often. Sure. But yeah, if there are only so so many hours in the day, then absolutely probability theory is more valuable than trigonometry. And you point out that that well-designed courses and video games can help people detect cognitive biases like the gambler's fallacy, sunk cost fallacy, confirmation bias. Do such video games exist today, or or, or are you? They, uh, they, they do. Now, this would this would not. Be, I think they would be you know scoffed at by serious gamers. But uh, in answer to the question, uh, can people be debiased? Can yeah. can people yeah. unlearn their all these biases that have been documented by uh, Kahneman and Tversky and the behavioral economists? The answer is it's not easy. That simply giving people a lesson off, they'll they'll remember the example, but then when they're given a, a second. Uh, example that shows the same principle, they won't transfer it. On the other hand, it's the depressing bottom line of almost all education. It's a, if you look at look at how much physics someone remembers six months out of college after they, mm -hmm. they, they've sold their textbook, it's not a pretty sight. Uh, but there are ways of teaching anything, including critical thinking, that are more effective than others. There's a, a, a psychologist at Boston University, Carrie Morwedge, who has developed a number of these video games uh, and, and shows that they really they do have results and they, they do stick. Now, it may, it may not have to be video games, but it has to be exercises where people are challenged to think through a, a problem uh, and to, to spot a fallacy with their own eyes um, and to work through the, the, the correct answer. And it's got to stretch them so that they realize it isn't just about breast cancer diagnosis. It isn't just about the hot hand in basketball to extract the statistical principle that explains the fallacy uh, that people have to be encouraged to see it in different guises. You know, you write towards the end of the book about American universities and the impact of some of the kind of social justice movement on rational thinking and rational administration. What do you think is happening there? Well, it has been documented. And again, I, above all people, should not point to a few examples as a, as a trend. But um, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education has shown that there is an increase in the number of students and professors who've been harassed for expressing uh, unpopular opinions over the last few years. They're, they're, the number of cases has shot up. And it, it is a real problem. Universities have a lot of uh, perquisites and privileges granted to them by society, like tax-free status, like uh, eye-watering tuition increases. How can they justify their existence? Well, this is the arena in which we try out ideas and see whether they're true or false. And if you can't try out an idea because someone will, will call you a transphobe or a, or a racist, uh, even if it's a perfectly innocuous but unusual idea, that's going to interfere with the mission of universities to uh, give the societies in, in which they're embedded uh, a chance to find out what's true and what's false. One of the many quotes in the book that I love, but that I wrote down, Stephen, for my um, my list of, of favorite quotes is, um, each of us has a motive to prefer our truth, but together we're better off with the truth. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. And it, it reinforces the idea that, the, and, and helps resolve the paradox of how our species could be so rationally irrational at the same time. And that is, it's, it, it's uh, uh, not a question of how rational any single person is. 
The question is, how good are the institutions in which we collectively pursue rationality, despite the biases and fallacies inside each one of us? You know, on that note, I, I love your optimism about the future of social media platforms, because obviously there's been a lot of, I think, valid concern, of course, about what's happened in recent years on social media platforms. Um, but you point out that every new medium, or most anyway, historically, have, have initially been used recklessly, that this was true of books and newspapers in the past. But then over time, institutions emerged to sort of improve the process. And you point out that Wikipedia is an impressive accomplishment because of fact-checking, because there's a fact-checking system, and that these social media platforms, which you describe as, quote, gigantic experiments in anarchy and democracy, are now starting to tune their algorithms to stop rewarding dangerous falsehoods. Do you think that we, we can fix our, our social media platforms? Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't be optimistic. I, I hope so. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I don't know whether they will or whether they can. The, the contrast with a platform like Wikipedia, which I, I have to confess, when it originated, I thought it was mm -hmm. um, a, a crackpot idea. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone could edit an, an encyclopedia article. Are you nuts? Mm. Yeah. And for for a variety of reasons, it worked. And you know, and, and Twitter does not. When it, at least when it comes to um, uh, aligning our beliefs with with uh, rationality. Now. I, it is an open question, and I, I, I should not express you know, optimism. We've got to try and wait and see whether it's whether there can be ways of mm -hmm. steering the the Twitterverse, the Facebook universe toward toward uh, greater truth. Without you know, the, the problem is that some of the measures have been pretty ham-fisted so far, and uh, accounts are suspended for off, often perfectly legitimate beliefs questioning uh, unsettled matters if, it, if, if some algorithm gets triggered by a phrase. So, so far they haven't done it and uh, it's really an open challenge whether it's doable. Mm, yeah, well, I, I'd love to land on this wonderful observation you make late in the book that the core of morality is impartiality. We want what's good for all of us. And impartiality is also the core of reason. And in this sense, you say, rationality is not just a cognitive virtue, but a moral one. A moral system naturally flows from the rational process. Yeah, it is. That is, it's, it's disinterested in the, tech, the, yeah. the literal sense of without a vested interest. Uh, that is, it's true whoever, uh, an argument is true or false regardless of who, of who, who makes it. And that principle that you can switch around the people who say things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's got to still be true is, is very close to the core of morality mm -hmm. uh, in the categorical imperative act so that your the maximum of your act can be a universal law, the golden rule. Uh, even what we say to children when we try to teach them the core of morality, how would you like it if he did that to you? That mm -hmm. is, <clears throat> you know, turnabout is fair play. And that, of course, that's what rationality consists of as well. It can't be, it's true because I say it and, uh, and I'm going to shut you up. It's got to be, here are reasons that, uh, that I can persuade you of that you yourself will, should find as compelling as, as uh, me. Now, granted, rationality always is in pursuit of some goal. So the use of rationality does not guarantee that it will be deployed toward moral ends. But ultimately, the fact that all of us have a sense of self-preservation, of self-interest, we, we wouldn't have survived if we didn't. The fact that our well-being depends on how other people treat us. The fact that if I make a demand that you treat me in a certain way, well, I've got to concede that I've got to, I, I have to treat you in the same way. Morality comes from that interchangeability of perspectives com combined with some uh, nugget of self-interest.
Well, that to me it would be a, a wonderful foundation for a um, a kind of secular church. In this process of trying to to valorize rationality, that getting together to talk about things that matter, the things that we believe in, and reinforcing you know shared values of rationality and 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 morality is something that I think benefits from ritual from music from from celebration right <laughs> i feel mm-hmm. I, I i feel like we th- that the marketing side of this mission to spread rationality is something that may, maybe more can be done with yeah and i i did uh, wonder about that in enlightenment now i mean and and the the humanist movement is in, mm-hmm. in part an attempt to do that there are you know sunday morning get-togethers and uh you know f- funerals and 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 weddings with uh, secular poetry and and uh, affirmations but yeah there is a some human need that ought to be uh, satisfied by institutions that are aimed at the at the norms that we can all agree on well thank you Stephen Pinker for taking time out of your reckless bicycling and jaywalking and uh, ignoring <laughs> your investment portfolio to be with us uh, here today thanks so much for having me great conversation Would you like to hear 12-minute audio summaries of the best new books read to you by the authors themselves? Of course you would. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. You'll also find ad-free versions of this podcast delivered 24 hours in advance, conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink, and lots of other highly rational content. If you like this show, please do the logical thing and leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Do you have any feedback for us? I would love to hear it. You can shoot me an email at rufus, that's R-U-F-U-S, at nextbigideaclub.com. Thank you, Steven Pinker. You can find his new book, Rationality, wherever books are sold or on the Next Big Idea app. And thank you, Mallory and Curtis, for the use of your house to record this episode. This episode was written and produced by the highly rational Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat, theme music by Costa Galanopoulos, sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.